0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the TWS Podcast. It's lights out, and away we go. I got free sausages sent to me every week for a year. Brilliant. <laughs> no, I never, really got to, I never really got to a place where I could call Michael a friend of mine, really. Don't worry, guys, I'm back. Panic's over. <laughs> I'm here.
1: And it was Wayne Rooney he walked through the doors, and I remember him saying, just make the most of every moment.
0: Hello, my name is Simon Lazorby and I'm a presenter on Sky Sports. You may have seen me present sports such as the F1, International Rugby, England Cricket and Golf from around the world. However, I wanted to come and give you some information about the TWS Sports Podcast. The TWS Sports Podcast is the only podcast in the UK which is hosted by autistic students who interview some of the biggest names in sport. Each week, they speak to a different sports person and delve deep into their lives, talking about the highs... And the lows of their career and what makes them a top athlete in their sports. The TWS Sports Podcast were voted the best sports podcast in the world that promotes social equality. They picked up that honor at the 2021 Sports Podcast Awards. So if you're a sports fan and want to hear these great stories with questions from some amazing young people who promote autism, then the TWS Sports Podcast is the podcast for you.
2: So we got some really exciting news in the podcast. Uh, Tom. You're back with us today, um, after yeah. moving away from TechnoWood Wood and, and onto a onto college. Um, it's a pleasure to have you back with us. How's everything going?
3: Yeah, going really well, thanks. I'm I'm really glad to be back, and also even though I'm in college, that hasn't really like turned me away from this podcast because like I can still do my course and then at times join the podcast.
2: Yeah, so um, hopefully we'll see a bit more of Tom because. You've been with us from the very start, Tom. So I didn't want to, and we didn't want to just kind of stop you working with the podcast because you've you've left techno. So hopefully there's opportunities for you to come back and, and join us like you are now. So you're doing it from your from your home, which is which is great, and supporting Mason because Mason's new on this journey.
3: Techno World School is a school for autistic children and young adults. And we have set this podcast up to provide our peoples with fantastic opportunity to develop a range of skills whilst interviewing top sportsmen and women from a variety of different sports. Joining us today on the TWS Sports Podcast is a former professional rugby player. He has played for Leicester Tigers, England and the Lions. Welcome to the podcast, Tim Stimson. Thank you very much. Glad to have you on the
4: podcast. Thank you. Much appreciated. (laughs) It's a bit scary sometimes, isn't it? When you watch it. Yeah, I've I've watched it loads.
3: <laughs> Before we start, we just wanted to say that if throughout this podcast, if you have any questions for us about anything, um, about the podcast and autism, then please ask. We
4: like to answer your questions too. Oh, thank you. I I, I look forward to be educated because this. Whenever you talk to people, it's all about listening as well as speaking, isn't it? So I'm looking forward to learning from all three of you. I'm sure I can learn a lot.
3: Yeah. We like to start our podcast with some random questions before we start talking about your career. Are you ready?
4: Yeah, I'm with you, mate. Who is the
1: most famous person in your phone book? Who is the most famous person
2: in your phone book?
4: Well, uh, I think there's a guy called Austin Healy, whose birthday it is today, would would tell everybody that he's the most famous from a from a rugby perspective and also um for being the best rugby player ever, in his own opinion.
3: <laughs> if you could trade lives of anyone for a day, who would it be and why?
4: Trade places. Yeah, for one day. For one day. Um it might be sound like a weird answer but the person that's come to mind is my granddad who's not not with us anymore because he but i i wonder what it would have been like to be my granddad back in sort of the 1950s um he's someone that really inspired me and uh, to try to be the best version of myself so i wonder what it would be like to be my granddad and just to look through his eyes for for a day it's a good answer
1: if you could have you any superpower what would you have and why
2: well then if you could have any superpower what would you have and why
4: well i think that's quite an easy one i'd like to be able to give people confidence i think um it'd be so nice to be able to reassure people that they they should speak up and they should just do their best and if um if it doesn't work out so you lose the match or you make a mistake, it, explain it doesn't matter. So to have the confidence to try, and that would be my superpower, to give people the confidence to have a go, because I, I sort of say you either win or you learn. You, you In life, you won't always get it right. You'll make lots of mistakes, but if you could have the confidence to try, then I think you'll learn a bit quicker.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, Mason. We want to take you back to the beginning and talk about you, Jude childhood childhood what you are your memories of growing up and did you always want to be a rugby player
4: that's a great question um well yeah i suppose my, i had a very happy childhood and my dad was the local rugby coach and played rugby on a saturday so i used to be the ball boy for him so my early memories down at Sandal Rugby Club in in Yorkshire, where I was brought up, would be to go and get the ball out of the field after someone did a conversion, or, or carry the oranges or carry the flags. And uh, so then I then I started playing mini rugby. I think I was about four or five years old, and I played for that mini rugby team like so many people do until sort of until I was a teenager, and then went on to play for schools and universities and and clubs. But yeah, I think I always wanted to be a rugby player. And I remember in one of my birthday cards, my granddad said, um, neglect not the gift that is within thee, which really means never be scared to, to to use your talent and to try things out. And I suppose on the rugby field, that's what I did. Um, I used to play fly half, but you'd always have a go. You'd always try and score tries or always try and make tackles or or get your penalties over. And, uh, and then, I suppose that you think, well, if I can play for Sandal, why can't I play for England? I just keep trying and try on you know keep trying to get better and learning, and that's what I did, And yeah, I feel very lucky that I stayed healthy and fit enough to play for for England and then the Lions and lots of rugby clubs.
3: You started your career at Newcastle, but only made four appearances for the club. Is it true? that the coach, Rob Andrew said he would never pick you for Newcastle again unless you sign a new contract. What was that time like for you?
4: Well, yeah, I mean, I played more than that in total for Newcastle. But after coming back off the Lions tour, Rob was keen to get his players to sign up for longer contracts. And I said I wasn't ready to sign. So it is true that he said that and and then i would go to every game and then be told that i wasn't playing and i needed to go and do corporate hospitality so to be honest it was a horrible time i felt really depressed i felt really hard done by like it wasn't very fair that that i wanted to play i was fit to play and i wasn't being allowed to play just because of a of a if you like a contractual dispute an argument about the next contract so we were, um I remember it. I, I sort of leaned heavily on on some good friends at the time. Um, mum, mum and dad were really supportive, and then I just had to wait until the contract ran out. And at the end of that season, I could go and sign for Leicester Tigers and, and try and try and play rugby again. So I just kept myself fit and had to wait and be patient before I could escape really and carry on carry on with my career. But yeah, it was a very uh, very distressing time because. At that stage I was playing for England and England said, well, we can't pick you because you're not playing fullback on Saturdays anymore. So it was... uh, I didn't just miss out on my Newcastle career, but I think I missed out on some of my England career as well.
3: You made your England debut very early on in your rugby career against Italy. What are your memories of that?
4: Well, the game just seemed to last only about 10 minutes. I think... You're so excited to, to play for your country and to get on the field against, against Italy at Twickenham. And I sort of didn't do a lot. I sort of feel a little bit sad that the game happened and I did, didn't do many mistakes, but I didn't really get involved as much as I wanted to. So I remember I wrote myself a, a letter that said, if I ever go on the field again without being confident and trying to influence the game as much as possible then I'll make myself quit rugby and go and do something else. So I I made myself a a, a contract, a new contract, really, that said, try not to be scared, even though you've got lots of people watching and you're playing for your country. um, Get out on the field and just enjoy it and try and do the best you can and don't be scared of of getting involved and taking responsibility. So, yeah, it was a really um, amazing thing to get your first cap, but also the game seemed to last minutes rather than 80 minutes it was all over far too quickly
3: also very early on in your career you went on tour with the lions to south africa in 1997 this was also the famous living with the lions documentary what was it like to go on
4: tour with the lions Oh, another great question how long how long do you want me to talk about i could talk about it for ages so um first of all you're very humbled because you feel very lucky, really, to be selected. So I'd only played sort of one season with England. And and, to, and sort of to get picked for England, Ireland, Scotland and Wales, you know, it felt four times better than just getting picked for one country. So then when you arrive um, to meet all the other players, they're sort of the, the legends of the games. They're a lot more experienced, some of them. You know, they... They, you've watched them on telly for five years or 10 years and to be part of that training group was just really awesome and really exciting but it it was made really easy by Seen McGeeken, who was the, the the main coach because he just made you feel at home he made you feel that you deserve to be there and very early on he gave everybody responsibilities to 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 lead and not just follow and I remember he gave me the challenge of of helping to create the, the the tour rules so you know what's what they call it like a, a code of conduct so how are we going to behave how do we want to be remembered you know how are we going to enjoy winning and losing how are we going to cope with being selected or not selected so as a group of players we all took ownership we took responsibility for how we were going to live the next eight weeks of our lives and we all bought into the dream that Even though we were playing against the world champions, South Africa were amazing. They were probably bigger and faster and stronger than us. But we believed by playing together that we could find a way to win. So we went on this tour and we started to build momentum and we started to learn how to play a really uh, cool interactive game of rugby where we, we always tried to move the ball before contact or away from contact so that we could we could play really fast rugby and our our super strength was fitness and teamwork and that was sort of up against the big strong bully um proven south africa weapon so it's a bit like the world cup final that's happening you know on saturday this week when you've got this massive strong south africa team you know with a bomb squad of a front row that come on and they'll be up against new zealand and i think you'll see two different styles of rugby where New Zealand tried to play fast and move the ball and use all 15 players, whereas South Africa will focus mainly on the forwards and, and try to dominate physically against New Zealand. And that's what the Lions was like. We had to use everybody. So it wasn't just the 15 players in the test team. Everybody that came on that tour was just as important as everybody else. And whether you're playing against a provisional team, a provincial team or a test team, it was your job to borrow the Lions shirt Because we said that you never actually own the shirt, you just borrow it. And it's your job to fill it with as much passion and belief as you possibly can. Uh, And that gave me the confidence to think, God, I'm playing for the British and Irish Lions. JPR Williams has worn this shirt. So I've got to play with the spirit of JPR, like this amazing fullback from the past from Wales. Or Andy Irving, who was this amazing Scottish player that I used to watch when I was growing up. So I was sort of inspired by people that have worn the shirt before me, and it was my job to fill it and and then pass it on to Neil Jenkins, who wore it in the Test matches. So he was confident, so he could play without fear, and he could he was amazing. He kicked some amazing goals and dropped goals that won won the series. So um, I think my overriding memory of that tour was that I um, I scored lots of points and did quite well, but I wasn't picked for the Test team. So when we won the second test in Kings Park, Durban, I was actually in the crowd. I was in my blazer and my tie, surrounded by our South African supporters. Yet when it's actually Jerry Guss did a drop goal and we managed to win that and we won the first test and won the second test, it felt just as good as if I'd actually dropped the goal. And I stood up in the crowd and I cheered and I screamed and then I I sang Oasis Wonder Wall for the next three hours in a marquee full of supporters. And we had such a great party and I've never felt that I wasn't on the pitch. I just, I've always felt that I was privileged and honoured to be part of a British and Irish team that went to South Africa in 1997 and we came away with a win. So it's, uh, yeah, it's one of those moments in your life that it's incredible, all the hard work uh, that you put in and some of the things that go wrong in, you, in, your, in your career, you can forget them because you've got that moment when you're part of something really special. And I've I made some great friendships um, from that tour. You know, everyone that went on the tour was friendly. Everyone would always look after you now forever. So when we had a reunion just uh, last year, and uh, it just felt the same. It felt like we'd never been apart, even though it was, you know, it's uh, how long ago? It was 20 years ago. 25 years ago, was it? Right. <laughs>
1: how did you feel having tv cameras following you everywhere on that tour
4: uh it was quite funny because we weren't used to having tv cameras with us at that stage in my life but um they were actually your teammates that were given the cameras so so doddy weir or john bentley uh really liked the attention (laughs) and they're big loud characters uh so they were always uh, trying to get hold of the tv cameras and then yeah, uh, all of a sudden you're walking down the corridor and they stick a camera in your face. But luckily, most of the boring bits I spoke about got edited <laughs> out of the out of the film. Um, but yeah, it was really I'm really pleased that they they did they did lots of videos because now I can watch Living with the Lions sort of it's sometimes on at Christmas and I watch it again on, and it takes me back to reminds me of things that I've otherwise would have forgotten. So actually, I was really pleased that the the, the cameras are there to remind me. In 1999, you left
1: Newcastle to join Leicester. Leicester. Leicester Tigers. Tigers. Leicester Tigers. Why do you choose Leicester?
4: Well, I wanted to go somewhere that would be happier than Newcastle. And I wanted some, a club that was secure and had chances of um, helping me fulfil my potential. So in order to be the best version of myself, I wanted to find the biggest and the best rugby club that could Challenge me, and also um, you know surround me with other great players. So when I met Joel Stransky and Dean Richards, uh, I was really inspired by by them. So Joel was the had won the World Cup with South Africa as a fly half, and and Dean Richards was uh, a real big talisman, a real great guy that had played a lot for England as well. And as as a kid growing up, my dad had taken me to watch Leicester. We used to watch the Leicester Barbarians game at Christmas. So. I'd nearly signed for Leicester before I signed for Newcastle, but I'd been told that the other England fullback called Ian Hunter was going to come to move from Northampton to play at Leicester. So I thought, I'll tell you what, why am I going to go and join the club that's got the other big running fullback in it? So I'd, uh, I delayed it and gone to Newcastle. And then um, it was great to get back to Leicester. And, uh, you know, I was part of a very successful squad and we went on to win. I think the next four championships and two European Cups. Uh, but mainly it was just a really happy place. We had to work very hard. And sometimes some of your mates uh, like Richard Cockrell might, might give you a slap or knock you about a bit in training. But it was, um, it was just a really happy place to be where we trained really, really hard. And then we'd all go home and get pizzas or watch Friends on TV or go and grab a coffee. And you just felt that you belonged and you were at home. And they just made you um, excited to go out every Saturday and try and do your best in front of the Welford Road crowd or the big travelling supporters that would come and follow us all over Europe.
3: In your first season at Leicester, you won the Premiership. What are your memories
4: of that season? Just great fun. I mean, we we I remember playing the first few games with Joel Stransky and he was this amazing fly half who managed to put me through holes. It was nice playing outside him. I remember a, a really tough game we had against Northampton Saints because they're the sort of big rivals, Leicester against Northampton and it sort of all kicks off and lots of England players that you are in the Northampton team against lost, lots of Leicester-England players and it was always really close. But I remember that was a particularly special day for me. My, my granddad had just died and I know I went out on the field um, as a celebration of his life. And I think it's probably the best game I ever played for Leicester. And we'd scored a few tries and uh, made a big impact. So that's one of my favourite memories of that year. And But there were lots of close games. You know, the Premiership is a really hard league to win. There are lots of other good teams. And um, it took every one of the Leicester squad to sort of find a way to win. And that's that's what I remember. But winning the league was just a big celebration. Um I think at the time my uh, my ex-girlfriend wasn't very healthy. So when we won up at Newcastle lots of my friends stayed in Newcastle and and went out and had a had a party and and all that but I remember just coming home to look after her because she wasn't very well. Um but but I just remember the relief as well of winning and it was super nice for me to to win against you know win against Newcastle.
1: What made that Leicester, team, so...
4: Successful. Successful. Well, I think um, if you look at most successful teams, uh, you'll find some things that are, are in common with them. So you need to have lots of individual players who who are good. Um, but it's even more important is to, it's to have a, a group of individual players who know that what's most important is that the, the team is successful. So instead of being selfish or trying to play their own game... Uh, everybody realised that for us to be successful, we all did our jobs. So we had, if you like, match winners all over the field who would be very good in the scrums and the lineouts. And we had a, a very good driving lineout at the time. Uh, that was probably the biggest weapon that Leicester had. Um, and then we had a backline, when allowed to have the ball, <laughs> would be uh, would be dominant and and have a go. But mainly, we had an advantage up front. So maybe with other teams, when I played at Hartlepool or at Durham or Wakefield, I'd have I'd have been running more from deep, because I'd have been a best one of our best attacking weapons. With Leicester, my job was to kick the ball off, and then we'd do a catch and drive line out quite often. And uh, Dorian West or Neil Back would sit in the pocket and and get get five points. So it was all about understanding, I think, uh, the role within the team. And Dean Richards was really, really important in that. You know, he was a, a real great manager who was a really good tactician. And then when Joel got injured, people like Andy Good came through as younger players. And that's when we had a guy called Pat Howard, who was a brilliant Australian centre who I who I live with and learns a lot from. He was later to become the backs coach and then the head coach up at Leicester. So I think we just had really smart players and, and But very humble players who, re, who realised that for, for for me to be successful or for Leicester to be successful, it was all about the team. And so we worked really, really hard on Mondays, Tuesdays, Wednesdays. We'd have a rest day on a Thursday, a really sharp team run on a Friday and then get out on the field and play against the opposition. And we had this belief that we trained harder than anybody else and we were better than anybody else. And even though we might go behind, we stayed, we stayed confident and usually we'd find a way to win.
3: Is it true that you were left out of the 1999 World Cup squad because of a dream Sir Clive Woodward had?
4: I think, yeah, partly. I mean, maybe I should have played better as well in the <laughs> in the in the run-ups to the game. And I think there's a couple of things you could say. Well, I could have done that better. But yeah, but I, I was expecting to be in the squad. I think I'd been in all the uh, the teams and the and the meetings. And uh, unfortunately when the team got announced um i wasn't in the squad and so i remember speaking to martin johnson who was the captain uh, and he said yeah bad luck to him apparently clive had a dream that he should take some other centers and uh the last minute he changed his mind so that was quite hard <laughs> to, to cope with again it was really disappointing not to not to get to a world cup um but, you know, at least I was healthy enough to be close to going to a World Cup. At least I was I was inspired again to try to get that England shirt back. Um, and I was obviously supporting England to do as well as they could because my mates were still playing for the England team. But, yeah, it was a, at the time I remember I went to the Lake District and went walking for three days on my own just to stay away from people. Because at the time I was having to deal with my frustration and my anger because uh, I felt it was, wasn't really fair. There was a lot of injustice, you know, to get dropped on a dream without someone telling you to your face was was quite hard to deal with, to be honest. And So I, I sort of, um from that moment, I've always been inspired that if I'm going to be a coach or even a dad, I'd much rather tell the player or my son to his face, you know, this is why I'm making my decision. You might not agree with me, but at least you can start dealing with it. Because there's always things as a player you can do better. And so I'd much rather be given an honest appraisal of my performance and then at least I can deal with it. So, um, yeah, you lose lots of games and you always make mistakes. But as long as people around you are honest with you and you can accept their criticism and try and learn from it. And I think that's the way you get better and you're happier. But when someone doesn't tell you the truth or... They haven't got the confidence to give you bad news, and that's where I think it's a waste of an opportunity and it's a waste of time.
3: I want to take you to the 2001 Heineken Cup final, which saw you beat straight from is it Francis? Stade France. Oh, Stade France in Paris. You won 34-30 after you scored 19 points and a
4: vital conversation. What are your memories of that game? So you've talked there about probably my favourite game of rugby. So then my proudest game would probably winning with the Lions that we've talked about uh, against South Africa. And my favourite game, most exciting game would have been playing for Leicester Tigers in the final of the Heineken Cup um, against Stade Francais in Paris. So first of all, I remember the, the number of people that from Leicester that came to watch. And I remember the sacrifices that you heard lots of stories about people that haven't got a lot of money, uh, but they would save and save and save and maybe walk to walk to work rather than going on the bus every day so they could put money aside so they could afford to get on the bus and come and support us in Paris. So I heard these stories and you're thinking, wow, that's inspirational. And it's so kind for these Leicester Tigers fans to have made those sacrifices. So and we all heard that story. So when we when we got to Paris, even though it was in Paris against a team from Paris, we still had thousands of Tigers fans in the in the stadium. And I remember it being a really hot day, and it, it was an amazing atmosphere. Um, it was incredibly noisy, and I know that uh, the Leicester Tigers' way of winning was usually built around the forward pack. It was all about our forwards being big enough and strong enough to get the, the upper hand over the opposition. And then as backs, we try and finish that off. But after maybe half the game, we were we realized we were getting beaten up by a stronger, um, slightly more aggressive, let's say, slightly more skillful forward pack. I remember Pat Howard looking at us all and saying, Look, guys, we're gonna have to change things here. It's not going our way. And so we started to see individual flair from the likes of Leon Lloyd or Jordan Murphy or Pat Howard guy. He was someone that very, very seldomly ever kicked the ball. But if you watch the video, you see him chipping the ball out to Jordan Murphy, who was known as the George best of rugby. because He was so skillful. And when he was about to get tackled, he grubbed it forward and Leon Lloyd managed to get um, his foot onto it. And then his foot onto it again and scored these incredible tries in the right-hand corner. And then later on in the game, Austin Healy was moved from scrum half to fly half. And he, he threw an outrageous dummy and went through a break and then threw a 30-yard pass to Leon, who managed to hold off a few defenders and score his, uh, his shush shushman try in the right-hand corner. And and then my job was to to, to kick the goals. Um, so I was up against a guy called Diego Dominguez, who was an amazing Italian-Argentinian kicker who, who scored nine goals for them. And my job was, he, was, he wasn't he was going to miss. He was incredible. So it was always my job to keep us in the game by not letting them get ahead on penalties. And so I had to have a really big game with the boot. And I remember I felt that one kick, I missed one kick that day that, that I still believe went over because it went right over the top of the, uh, the the uprights. And they said it hadn't gone over, but I had another kick from there with th- two or three minutes to go, which I managed to get, get over. And we managed, managed to win by four points. So, yeah, I remember it being really close. I remember the backs having to win the game for the forwards. I remember Jono punching someone on the side of a rook and getting the yellow yellow card. Uh, and we had to play without our captain. But, uh, you know, it was an amazing team effort. And it was the likes, you know, of Darren Garth in the front row and Dorian West and you know, people you might not have heard of, like Will Will Johnson, Martin younger brother, broke his wrist and carried on playing. And there were some amazing, brave performances from everybody. And uh, it was just uh, one of those days I'll never forget. Um, and, I, yeah, it's uh, probably my favourite ever game of rugby. And then after the match, you're supposed to go to these formal functions where you have to go and meet the, the president of the club and shake hands with famous people and Dino just said to us boys do you want to go to the function or do you want to go down the road and meet some of our fans in the local pub so we all would rather go and meet our mates down in the local pub so we just left the stadium and walked to the local pub and I remember just chatting to people and they all had sort of green and white and red striped faces and they had tigers written across their faces and they were all waving flags and screaming and yeah so we just I was exhausted, to be honest. I remember just sitting down on the grass and having a beer and chatting. And so, yeah, that's my uh, a memory of an amazing day, uh, an amazing uh, culmination of, of effort, because I think it had taken about three or four years of Leicester to recover from losing to breathe in a previous European final. And so everybody had a point to prove, and we managed to to win the European Cup for Leicester. And for the, for the city of Leicester, that's how we feel about it.
3: We spoke to your former teammate, Leon Lloyd, on the podcast and we got in touch with him again recently and asked him about you. Leon said you should have got man of the match in the game but they gave it to Austin Healy because the commentator was Austin's mate.
4: What are your thoughts on this? Honestly, I don't... I don't care. (laughs) Um... (laughs) I don't because I know at the moment I live in a house and in the loft, I've got old shirts and old medals and tankards and silverware that lives inside a box. And I'll pass some of it on to my kids and I've given some, you know, charity and to museums and things, but man of the match awards aren't important. What what matters as I think we've just been talking about for five minutes is the memory of the day and what we achieved together. So, so much more important is the fact that we are European club champions and we achieve something together that we'll never forget as to whether or not I've got another medal upstairs in the loft that's got a man of the match award on it. That, that's not me. You know, someone like an Austin, I'd say, cares a lot more about his man of the match medal than anybody else. And I say that tongue in cheek, because actually he's not a bad bloke. This <laughs> comes across as a uh, at times as a prat sometimes, but, um, No, so I'm not bothered. I mean, I just enjoy the fact that we, me and Leon and Nostin, we've got those memories to share together. And uh, it gave us confidence to sometimes deal with things that come along that aren't as much fun and maybe setbacks. So we've achieved something special. So we'll always be mates and we'll always respect each other for for the hard work that everybody put in. And uh, the fact that somebody said I wasn't man of the match, I've never thought about it.
3: Leon? Continued by saying that one of his best memories is your fifty-eight meter penalty kick to beat Clinelli Is I pronounce it?
4: Clinetti. Yeah, it's difficult. You yeah. made a, a much, very, very good effort at it. It's very tough.
3: Yeah. In the semi-final of the Heineken Cup, you are remembered for your amazing match-winning kicks. But you, you are more than that you were a great player too.
4: Leon's a lovely lad, isn't he? <laughs> he is, though. I mean, he he's he's such a nice guy because he always cares um, about people. And what I'd say about Leon is he's an inspiration because he was quite a young lad compared to us, but he's, he's, he's grown into a brilliant man. And he, he now works very hard to help other people achieve their ambition. Um, when people leave rugby or leave sport, he tries to help them go and find another... Great career, another great job uh, in life. So I'm not surprised at Leon saying nice things. It's because he's a he's a great bloke. Um, but yeah, the 58 meter kick was one of those moments. Um, if I tell you the story about the 58 meter kick, it was a very tight game, and uh, neither team really deserved to win or lose. It was just a stalemate of a, of an arm wrestle in the middle of the field, and then. Dean Richards had said to Darren Garforth, who was our prop, in one of the meetings that this referee never likes to give penalties from scrums because he's not sure whether the which front row has been cheating. So he always t- he tries to do reset scrums. But if he does give a penalty away, it'll be probably for a, the team that can't kick the winning goal. And because we were 58 metres or 60 metres away, Darren Garforth got penalised for collapsing a scrum. And I'm not sure whether he did it deliberately or not, but the referee was talking about, well, there's a penalty to Leicester. And Martin Johnson, who was the England captain and the club captain, was talking about what line-out they were going to call after I kicked it into touch. But I realised that I could kick the ball over the post from there. So I'd been up to Nottingham Forest because it's only sort of 45 minutes from where I live in Leicester. And and I practised every day. Uh, I'd taken my own bag of balls you could usually bribe a groundsman with a packet of sweets, packet of biscuits. And so I'd been up every day that week to practice on this, on the pitch we were going to play on because we're playing on a football pitch. And I didn't know exactly how big it was or what the wind did as a kicker. You try and work that out because certainly for long kicks, the wind's going to move the ball around. So I knew that I would practiced from roughly where that penalty was awarded. So I knew it was in range. So, I overruled Martin Johnson and told the referee we we're going for a penalty kick. And then I managed to get the ball over the post. So it was quite close. It hit the crossbar, it hit the post, and then it went over. So when I'm joking, I say that was never in doubt. That was just, just <laughs> what I had planned. Uh, but no, so it was one of those things where I, I all I did was my job in the same way that, um, you know, a prop has to lift a lifter in a line out or a, a jumper has to catch the ball. My job was to was to kick goals. Not my only job, but one of my big jobs was to kick goals. And so that's why I took responsibility because I didn't want to feel like I did in that Italy game in my first cap for England. I didn't want to feel like I came off the field thinking, oh, I, I reckon I could have maybe kicked that and we might have won. Whereas instead of feeling like that, I took responsibility and said, right, John, over referee, we're going for posts. So um, yeah, Leon's right. You, you're never just one thing. You know, Leon's famous for scoring some amazing tries. But one of his greatest assets was being a brilliant defender. Because he was really quick, he could allow people to get on his outside and still catch them and tackle them. So often people talk about Leon's tries, but as a player playing with him, you had a lot of confidence that he would make some great tackles. Even though he wasn't a massive, strong, uh, bruising centre, he was a very clever and fast centre. So, um, you know, everyone's got to do more than just kick goals. But yeah, that's probably what I'm remembered for. Him.
3: We just wanted to stop the questions about your career at the moment and play a Would You Rather game. Are you ready? I am. Okay. Night in
4: or night out? (laughs) uh, Because I spend most of my life in, I'm going to say night out. Beach holiday or city break? Beach holiday. Would you rather talk to
3: animals or speak every language in the world?
4: I'd I'd like to speak every language in the world.
3: Would you rather explore space or the bottom of
4: the ocean? I would rather explore the bottom of the ocean.
3: Would you rather go forward 200 years and see your future family, or go back 200 years and meet your ancestors?
4: (laughs) I've already answered that one. So I've got to say I go back in time to meet my ancestors.
2: PicturePath is an award-winning visual timeline app that's empowering individuals with autism. This free app provides a simple way for users to plan out activities, such as going to a match or a theatre, using structured timelines that reduce stress and anxiety. Users create a visual timeline that caters to their specific daily needs, allowing them to prepare for activities, events and routines. PicturePath provides a structure that enhances communication, promotes independence, improves memory recall and supports users to manage their day with confidence. Whether for personal use or in educational settings, Picturepath is the ultimate tool for individuals with additional needs, empowering them to manage their schedules, track progress, and enjoy more activities. Picturepath. Download the app today.
1: Oh, a big cricket fan. It's-y, it is true. fact you. Ones. faced South. Avon. Fast. Blower. Lola. Alan. Donand. How was fat? Yes,
4: yeah, so the question was, I love my cricket. Yeah, I still love playing cricket and coaching cricket a bit now. But I um I once played as a he was an 18, 19 year old against uh, Alan Donald, who was that time is known as Whispering Death, because he's one of the fastest bowlers in the world. And so I uh, I came out and I hit his first ball, he bowled to me for four through extra cover, and then I got out against the spinner at the other end. And as I walked off the pitch, the opposition said, you scaredy cat. <laughs> you didn't dare stay on and face the music from Alan Donald, bouncing it a little bit shorter past my head. So, yeah, I was very lucky to get away alive, to be honest.
2: <laughs> so how did that happen? How did you play against him? Was that-
4: well, I was playing sort of a semi-pro cricket okay. up in Yorkshire in the leagues, and it was a cup game. So he, he was probably, you know, available in his off-season for, for some extra, extra cash. And he was coming to play for in a semi-final, and I came in at number three with a cloth cap on, and and stroked him for extra cover, which probably wasn't. But I, I just figured the first ball he was going to try and bowl me out, so I took a step down the wicket and just stroked him through extra cover, and then I was didn't see the ball, <laughs> so uh, I'm sure he could have uh, destroyed me with extra pace. Because I think when you when you see real talent of in other another sports, you realise that we're all just messing about. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm enjoying watching the Cricket World Cup at the moment on the telly, and it's just incredible to see how the game's moved on. And it's also frustrating when I try and do it, I can't do it. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're lucky to be focused on the sports you're good at. I mean, I love golf as well as a as a social sport. And then, you know, I think that's I'd love to go and watch the Ryder Cup, but I but I love that as watching individuals come together, playing for Europe and taking on the Americans. I mean, wow, amazing. Yeah, we won't talk too much about the Cricket World Cup at the moment. England um, are not doing too well, are they? No, unfortunately, they're at the bottom of the league at the moment. But I think if they win the next four games, they've got half a chance of getting through. But it's it's very unlikely they're going to beat India. Yeah,
2: I tell you, yeah, they're struggling at the moment against Sri Lanka. Uh, oh, it's on today, isn't it? Yeah.
4: Do you want another score?
2: Yeah, go on then. So England got 158 all out. And Sri Lanka currently 94 for two.
4: Well, I think they might be coming home then. <laughs> Oh, that's terrible news!
2: <laughs> After so much
3: success at Le- Leicester between nineteen ninety nine and two thousand two, the success stopped. What happened at Leicester at that time to have a sudden stop in success?
4: Um, I think as a club, you, know, you go through phases where you need to try to, you know, stay at the top. So by we won four championships in a row, which was amazing, but it also you know, inspired the other clubs to to get better. So I think they caught us up and went past us. So you tend to have little periods of time. I think it was then Wasps that came over, you know, came over and won the premiership quite a few times. And then later on, it's been Saracens that have been dominant. So I think you go through phases where you just happen to have a, a really awesome squad. So it's not just the 15 players that, you know, if everyone was fit, they'd all be picked. I think at Leicester... At the start of professionalism, Dean Richards, John Wells, Pat Howard, they were able to recruit maybe three fantastic players, at least. You now, the back row was 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 full of riches. We had people like Josh Cromfeld, who was the all-black open side, couldn't get a game for nine weeks because we already had Lewis Moody and Neil back in the open side. So I think Leicester had the best squad, depth of squad for that period of time. But then as some of those guys got older or moved away, it was harder then to recruit um, as good y- young talent to bring it through because the other clubs were were they had a better chance of getting first team rugby if they went to Saracens or to Harlequins or to Northampton because Leicester had had such success. So I think it was a it was an inability to keep on evolving uh, as, as quickly as we needed to, and at the same time the opposition just got better. So more and more players came from abroad to come and play in the Premiership and the whole standard rose and Leicester you know they, they they tried they got to a few more finals over the years but it wasn't it's very unlikely that one team will be so dominant again for four back-to-back championships
3: in 2003 you left Leicester Tigers to join Perpignan <laughs> so, how, do you, how do you pronounce it Perpignan yeah.
4: Perpignan it's it, a French team yeah
3: okay in france why did you decide to leave and why did you choose
4: france okay well i i just missed out on selection again for the world cup in 2003 and so just running into that period of time i, I then thought well okay i've been here i've played in the i've played in the english premiership for a while i want a new challenge wouldn't it be great to go and live you know in lovely sunshine by the sea uh, discover a different culture and at that time Perpignan were recruiting a team that they wanted to win the European Cup so it was a chance to play with um, well Daniel Herbert who was the most capped Australian centre at that stage um, uh, Scott Robertson who's now the head coach we be the head coach of New Zealand All Blacks you know Dan Luger and Sort of, uh, if you like an international team and some French internationals, and I thought, wow, let's go down there and prove myself again because Leicester had played against Perpignan every year in the in the European Cup, so it had some big games against them. I knew the atmosphere was amazing. They they set firecrackers off. They they sent people around on bikes, and it's more like a football stadium. It's crazy down there. And I thought, wow, someone and they came, they'd been asking me to join them for like three or four years, and I thought, well. I've not made the World Cup squad. Maybe it's the right time to go and have a new challenge. And that's why I went there. I didn't want to play against Leicester for another premiership team. I wanted to go and discover something really new. And I chose between playing um, rugby union down there or actually going to American football. So I was offered a contract to go and play American football as a kicker, to go and live in America. But I thought that was really risky, (laughs) even though it would have been fun. I I didn't have the experience, so I decided to turn that down and go to France. Unfortunately, I then found that I had a, a benign tumour in my knee. So when I was still playing for Leicester before I joined Perpignan, I found that my knee was really sore, and so I had a tumour taken out of my knee. Uh, but that was really bad news, because when the French team found out that I'd had surgery, they said, oh, you must have known you you had a bad knee, and I obviously didn't. And so they said, you must play as soon as you get here uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the first European Cup match. But I'd just had surgery. So when they made me go on the field, I fell over because my leg was, was unstable. And so I ended up having a terrible time in France. Uh, it was really upsetting. It was a bit like the Newcastle story when they said, oh, you must play. And I said, well, I can't play. I'm now injured. And so they decided not to pay me. So then I had to go to court in a big fight for eighteen months to try to um, to leave Perpignan and, and come back and start my career again. So uh, yeah, Perpignan is a beautiful city, and I made some good French friends. But my experience there was a proper nightmare, and I then I then came back to England and uh, signed for for Leeds Tykes to be a player coach. So. My mum and dad live in Yorkshire, so it was sort of like coming home to go and play near where I started and then to develop myself as a coach. Um, But it did take me about, you know, half a year to rebuild my leg because by playing on it when it was unstable, it had made it pretty sore. So, yeah, I left because I wanted a new challenge and then I came home to start again because I'd had an awful experience. If we
1: spoke to you some... If you if your former teammates, what do you think they would say
4: about you? What would my former teammates say about me now? Well, it depends on which teammates, <laughs> to, doesn't it? Um I hope they'd say that I was honest. I hope they'd say that I always gave a hundred percent. Um, and that they enjoyed playing with me. And because I certainly enjoyed playing with them. And spending time with them, you know, off the field as well. So potentially they might say that i um I could have done more, that I could have played more for my country. and maybe looking back, I think I what I wasn't very good at was communicating to my bosses, so with England, so with Sir Clive Woodward, those sort of people. I just assumed that they would know that I could do an attacking game, a defensive game, a wide game, a narrow game, a power game or a skill game. Because I think I've got the ability to do most. But what I did was say, well, what what Leicester tell me to do, I'll do that. Or what West Hartlepool need me to do, I'll do that. But I sometimes think that the coaches with England didn't know me as well as I knew me. And I wasn't um, strong enough about showing them or telling them what I could have done in their style. So I, if I have a regret, it's that we, I didn't have a, a better working relationship with the backs coaches and the and, and Sir Clive Woodward with England because I didn't really enjoy my England career because I never really felt accepted or in, you know or encouraged or I wasn't given a clearer directive of what they wanted, whereas you know with the club time teams and working with people like Pat Howard and Leicester and exactly and Dean Richards. I knew exactly what they wanted. I didn't always agree with it, but because you know what they want, you can do it. And so I think, um, yeah, some of my teammates might say, "Well, you're unlucky not to play more games for England," but overall, yeah, you're 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 a good man, and I enjoyed playing with you. And thanks for winning us the odd uh, odd European Cup match.
3: Uh, we have a different type of question for you now, and you have to think carefully about it. So the question is, you have a paperclip and you are given 20 minutes to hide this paperclip somewhere in your house. After 20 minutes, there will be five FBI agents that will enter your house and have an hour to find the paperclip. Where are you going to hide the paperclip and why?
4: Well, i probably put it in the jar of paperclips. <laughs> <laughs> and, and hopefully... They won't be able to spot which one they're looking for. So I'd hide it in pl- in plain sight would be the answer. Or I'd uh, I'd put it in my shoe, you know, <laughs> stick it into the sole of my shoe so they can't find it.
1: Yeah, Mason. Why did you decide to retire?
4: Well, I finally retired because my body was too sore. So I, um, I was 33, 34. I was player coaching. I was loving coaching at Nuneaton and, and playing. But after every game, um, my body would take longer and longer to, to recover. And I was taking painkillers and then also not playing particularly well because I was in pain and I wasn't really – I think I cracked a couple of ribs and I was still trying to play. And it just became not much fun anymore. So I wasn't uh, – I wasn't um, getting the sheer adrenaline rush or the euphoria. So it made the pain less worth it. (laughs) So, uh, you know, and also I, I wanted to get on with the next chapter. I thought, well, I've had a really lucky time to play rugby from the age of sort of four to 34. And so many good players, sometimes great players get injured before they get that chance. And before I run my body into the ground, I've got to look after this. It can't be a carcass. I've got to look after my body because hopefully I'm going to live to a ripe old age, eighties, nineties, hundreds, and this is the only body I've got. So I thought it was probably better to stop, uh, and then and then and then take on the next challenge.
3: We have spoken to a number of former rugby players on the podcast, such as Alex Popper and rugby league player Stevie Ward. Both have been battling their own problems with head trauma and dementia. You also do a lot of work in this area. Can you tell us a little bit more about it, please, and what is being done to make the game of rugby safer?
4: Yeah, it's a really important point that you've raised. Um, So I, I used to play with Alex at Leeds, so he's one of my teammates who is now suffering from a, it's called CTE, but basically it means that you start to have um, dementia or difficulty in, in using your brain so parts of the brain have become damaged from lots and lots and lots of bangs playing rugby so you might have memory loss or you might get mood swings or you might not be able to sleep or you might just have really bad headaches so these are things that you don't really want to have to deal with but now I know that quite a lot of my former teammates are suffering and will suffer from from these these brain injuries So I've been part of a voluntary group called Progressive Rugby, which um, we try to lobby the, the powerful people. So World Rugby and the RFU to make sure that they are doing everything they can to make the game as safe as possible. And so recently you've seen a lot of news in the press about the tackle height. So lowering the tackle height to the bottom of the sternum, which is the bottom of your, you know, below your breasts here. And that's going to be good at avoiding head on head collisions. And there's also been a lot of awareness around if somebody does get dazed, they take a a brain injury, a mild traumatic brain injury, then they're told they mustn't play for at least three weeks post symptoms. Whereas when I was playing quite often, I'd get a bang on the head. I might get knocked out and then come round and I'd have some smelling salts and carry on. So we didn't know when I was playing, the danger of playing on once you've had a, a really bad blow to the head or you've had a concussion. So, or a head injury. So it's really important now that uh, certainly youth players whose brains are more delicate than than men's, if they get a whack on the head and they have symptoms of concussion, which they're 22 and I bet most people don't know them, don't ask me to vote them all, but the uh, they, they need to take time out, not only to get over their headaches, but to wait for their brain to start recovering inside. And that for a man is three weeks, a boy and maybe even for a female rugby player it's, they're thinking now it might take even longer it might take four weeks because girls have got a smaller necks they're not as strong and some of their um, brain functions are more disturbed for on average four weeks than three weeks so what am I doing about it well I'm lobbying but I've also I stopped working in sustainability so I've been an environmental campaigner and worker for a long time but I I, I, I found a the world's safest cycle helmet business called Headcase, and I said to George, who's their inventor, "Is there any way you could take your special technology, which creates really safe cycle helmets, and make really safe rugby headguards?" And he said yes. So at the moment, I spend uh, all my time uh, launching a rugby headguard, which will take away eighty-five percent of the force that would have hit you on the head. It'll be absorbed by the clever head guard, which will help to reduce the number of times that people get brain injury playing rugby. But that's only part of it. So I'm working with the clever doctors and the clever scientists to create uh, education. And I'm doing more research into the importance of building up your neck muscles, because strong neck muscles mean that whiplash caused by impact to the body gets absorbed before it reaches the brain. So you can protect your head wearing a head guard, but you can also protect your head by building up stronger neck muscles, as well as if you get a bang, make sure you spend at least three weeks recovering and don't think you can play next weekend. It's not safe. So, um, yeah, so I'm on a bit of an obsessive crusade, but it's so exciting to be working with clever people because we can make a difference and we can help prevent more friends like Alex Popham. Um, getting injured from playing rugby because i still think the positives of playing rugby outweigh the negatives the confidence that you get the joy you get the fitness that you get the camaraderie you get so i'm coaching kids at weekends and on tuesday nights and they love it and i I applaud everyone for encouraging their kids to play rugby and other sports provided you do all you can to when they to educate them and their parents that said a head bang or a concussion is is really important you really need the brain to recover. You need to give it three weeks because sometimes they call it second impact syndrome. If you get a bang on an existing bang on your head, it can cause a really terrible bleed, which can lead to horrible consequences and has done. A lad called Ben Robinson and he was killed because he he played on after he'd had a bang on the head and he should have been told to get off the field. And his parents have been campaigning for a long time and I want to support them and applaud them for what they do. And that's my inspiration now is to bring a a head guard to market that can really make a difference alongside a better education and better protocol. So, yeah, it's a really important thing. We didn't know about it when I was playing, uh, but I know about it now. And for, for me to let my sons play rugby, I need to make it safer.
3: The transition from sportsman into retirement can be very difficult you go from doing something every single day and being told what to do by someone to nothing how did you find that transition after after rugby and were you prepared for it
4: great questions guys you're asking um the transition I, I sort of wasn't in control um you know I talked about retiring because I, my body was sore um, it wasn't like I had a ready-made job to go into. It wasn't like I planned it. It was just at the end of my career, I had quite a lot of trouble with Perpignan. I came back and t- got fit with Leeds, played a bit as a player coach, but and then all of a sudden me and my wife, we got pregnant. So we we I started to have to deal with the responsibility of being a father and changing where I lived and earning a living to look after my, my, my family. And, um, So to be honest, my transition was really stressful, was really hard. And I'm now 50 and I finally think I'm sort of dealing with it. It sounds crazy, but I think for a long time I was just in crisis mode, that I was just making sure I tried to fix any problem I could and to make life as good as I could for my family. But I wasn't doing it really smart. I was trying to do too many things, trying to earn too much money too fast, and so I regret that I didn't have a better plan. And I regret that looking back, I could have done things differently. I could have maybe a bit, been a bit calmer and found a, a bit of a team to play in. But I um, I survived because um, you have to. <laughs> I enjoy making speeches and motivating people. And I want to change the world. And I'll never stop wanting to change the world. And I've still got lots of confidence from being having a lovely family and enjoying a good rugby career so but yeah the transition is hard and I still think it's so important that you prepare for life after rugby because you are going to finish your rugby career maybe tomorrow if you get a really bad injury or it could be when you hit 35, 36 if you're really lucky but players today don't have often, they don't have the background I had because I went to school I went to university I had a job at ICI which is pretty boring to be honest you No, know, it was it was hard and and then I played rugby and so I had an experience of working in proper in proper jobs not just playing rugby whereas most of the kids that come through now they make a decision at 14 and 15 that they want to be a rugby player and they focus mainly on that but I think it's so important because I think the stats in rugby is that if you get into a let's say Leicester Tigers academy You've done really well to get there, but about only one player a year makes it as a full-time professional rugby player from that academy. And then a terrible stat was when you retire from rugby or American football or ice hockey, these global sports, within three years of retirement, I think about ninety percent of retiring sports people suffer from depression, bankruptcy, and and divorce. So actually. If you, you're incredibly lucky, if you can make it into professional sport, but incredibly likely likely at the end of professional sport to have a bit of a crisis. So we need to do more as a, as as individuals take responsibility for your next job, and also as a, as a, as a sport, rugby should be helping these young players prepare better for life after rugby, and then you'll find a a happier, more content better performing rugby player especially towards the end of their career when they start to get scared about if I don't get a new contract or if I miss this kick for goal or if I miss that tackle I might lose my job and then I'm not not sure what I'm going to do so I think everybody should have a plan a life plan and they should look to develop themselves as they go through it and a rugby career is only ever going to be a short career with another 50 or 60 years hopefully for you to do something different
3: so if you could go back 20 years ago to when you were 30, and beginning to think about retirement in a few years, what would a 30 year old Tim do differently to prepare himself for retirement?
4: Yeah, I wouldn't have listened to the financial advisors that I did. So I'd have been, so what I listened, I tried to get good advice and I invested my money that I'd earned into properties and different schemes and pension schemes and things and they all ended up going wrong. So what I would have done is made sure I didn't risk, let's say 80% of my wealth that I'd created. And I only dabbled in 20%, which would have made life a lot easier when you first become a dad and that sort of thing. And then I would have tried to take on um, work experience when I was still playing rugby. So I did do a degree. I did start an MBA, which is a, a master's in business. But by going to france i couldn't couldn't complete it so i wish i'd have um found some trusted friends while i was still playing rugby that i could then go and work with for the next sort of five years as i start to adapt from a rugby way of life into a working way of life um, and what i ended up doing was just trying about 10 different businesses that i tried to work with and quite often i do them a good job in all honesty but they weren't very honorable and they would take my effort and not repay it with value. And so eventually I'd have to leave. So it's finding people to trust when you come out of rugby in what I called Civvy Street would be so important, but then also maybe re-qualifying in something that you're good at. So learn about yourself, learn about what motivates you, what do you value in life, and then go and get re-qualified and re-trained in 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 a career that allows you to do that. Because I love rugby, so... You, it was easy to play rugby, but it's not as always been easy to be a financial advisor or to sell insurance or utilities or these other jobs that you try to do to, to, to bring money into the family. Um, so try to find something you can be passionate about and you enjoy and you value, and then try to become skillful at that and then be patient because it might take you three or four or five years to, to learn how to do that job because you've coming out of one job into a new one. So don't think you can start at the top. So lots of, lots of advice. Uh, hopefully people like Leon Lloyd are out there helping real people with that sort of advice right now.
3: Every week on the podcast we like our guests to ask questions to each other so we get a guest to ask a question but they have no idea who the question is going to be for. This week's question comes from our previous guest. Former Saracens Bath and England rugby player, David Flatman, who asked, what is your favourite book and why?
4: So it's a good good question from Flats. It sounds really geeky, but I'm gonna say The Pursuit of Excellence. And okay. it's an incredible book that's sort of written by uh, some people from New Zealand who, who try to look at different sports organisations to work out what made them successful. You know why were the Chicago Bulls or the Washington Redskins or Manchester United? And then so they did an analysis of these sports organisations to find out what makes them tick. And so I then tried to apply that to Leicester Tigers or to businesses that I now I now work in. And it's all about honesty. The answer is honesty. It's being able to be honest with people, even when it might be quite critical. But then take that advice. As a, as a way of helping you as opposed to criticizing you. So in a nutshell, that's a great way of living. When you get told off, don't just think, oh, you're nagging me. Why are you always beating me up? Why can't you just be pleased for me? If someone's telling you something, let's think, you know, why are they bothering? Are they being selfish? Or actually, are they trying to point out something that I could do with listening to? So, um, yeah, I think it, The Pursuit of Excellence would be a cool book to, to recommend.
3: Could you do the same, please? Can you think of a question for our next guest, please? But we aren't going to tell you who the next guest is. The question can be literally anything you want.
4: Shall I be kind? <laughs> or shall I, shall I be mean? <laughs> <laughs> the, the question, right, okay. How about um, what do you feel most guilty about? And... What would you do differently now so you don't feel guilty?
2: Good question. Interesting question.
3: <laughs> I would just like to say a big thank you again to everyone who listens to our podcast. We really appreciate it. Please continue to leave reviews and pass our podcast on to your friends and family. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Tim. We really enjoyed speaking with you and it means so much to us at a school to be at Able to have the opportunity to
4: speak with you. Thank you. Can I, Tom and the boy? Can I just say, boys, that's the best interview I've ever been given. (laughs) Thank you. Seriously, because you've asked me honest questions that have been challenging, and have made me think. So I think you've both got a massive career in journalism to carry on this way. And so thank you for giving me the chance to talk. And I hope that all your listeners, you know, get something from this. And most of all, you guys are confident to go on and. Achieve your dreams too. Again, so well
2: done, Mason. How did you find that podcast? Good. Yeah? Brilliant. So thank you so much for joining us, Tom. So it's a pleasure to, to speak to you. And how's everything going with college? Okay?
3: Yeah, going really well. I'm, I'm glad to be like, I made new friends there while still chatting also to my old friends also from Technol. And uh, I'm also really glad to be doing my supported internship course.
2: Brilliant. That sounds amazing. And the three of us, so me, Mason and you, Tom, we're off to the football on Saturday. We're off to watch Wolves for Newcastle. So yes. I will see you all on Saturday. Fingers crossed for a Wolves win.
3: Hopefully. Yes,
2: I will, we'll see you all Saturday. And we'll report back on the podcast what we thought of the football and um, hopefully we will have some good news for, for our Wolverhampton Wanderers fans anyway. Yeah. So thank you so much for everyone for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to join us on social media. And you can follow us and you can see more of our clips and you can ask questions as well by visiting our website, which is www.twsportspodcast.co.uk We'd love to hear your questions and your questions for your guests. So thank you again for listening and we will see you all again soon. Thank you.
0: The TWS Sports Podcast combines autism and sport. This unique podcast is hosted by children with autism and each week they interview famous sportsmen and women from around the world. The TWS Sports Podcast takes you deep into the sports star's career, their highs and lows, what happens away from the field of play, and so much more. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other podcast apps. The TWS Sports Podcast, where autism and sports combine.